Welcome to this episode of Hip Hop History. This week we are talking about another pillar of hip hop. This week it's the art of graffiti, which is writing or drawings, scribbled, scratched, or sprayed on a wall or other surface in a public place. Graffiti ranges from simple written words to elaborate wall painting. Graffiti, consisting of defacement of public spaces and buildings, remains a nuisance issue for city, or they could embrace culture and allow sanctioned graffiti. But anyways, in America around the late 1960s, graffiti was used as a form of expression by political activists and also by gangs such as the Savage Skulls, La Familia, and Savage Nomads to mark the territory. Towards the end of the 1960s, the signatures or tags of Philadelphia graffitiists, Cornbread, Cool Earl, Sketch, and Topcat 126 started to appear. Cornbread is often cited as one of the earliest practitioners of modern graffiti. Around 1970, the center of graffiti innovation moved to New York City, where graffitiists, following the wake of the Taki 183, Tracy 168, and Phase 2, would add their street number to their nickname, bomb a train with their work, and let the subway take it all city. Along with their fame, if it was impressive or simply pervasive enough, bubble lettering held sway initially among graffiti artists from the Bronx, though the elaborate writing Tracy 168 dubbed Wild Style would come to define the art. The early trendsetters were joined in the 70s by graffitiists like Dondi, Zephyr, and Lady Pink. Graffiti is one of the four main elements of hip-hop culture. The relationship between graffiti and hip-hop culture arises both from early graffitiists practicing their aspects of hip-hop and its being practiced in areas where other elements of hip-hop were evolving as art forms. By the mid-80s, the form would move from the street to the art world. Jean-Michel Basquiat would abandon his same tag for art galleries and street arts connections to hip-hop would loosen. Occasional hip-hop bands to graffiti would still be heard throughout the 90s. However, in tracks like Artifacts, Wrong Side of the Tracks, Quell's Brick Walls, and ASAP Rock's No Jumper Cables, early modernist graffiti can be dated back to boxcars in the early 1920s, yet the graffiti movement seen in today's contemporary world would really originate through the minds of political activists and gang members of the 1960s. The pioneering era of graffiti took place during the years 1969 through 1974. This time period was a time of change in popularity and style. New York City became the new hub, formerly Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and to a lesser degree in Boston, of graffiti tags and images. Graffitiists during this time period sought to put as many markings up as possible around the city. This was the ultimate goal of exposure. Soon after the migration from Philadelphia to New York City, the city produced one of the first graffiti graffitiists to gain media attention in itself. Taki 183 was a youth from Washington Heights, Manhattan, who worked as a foot messenger. His tag is a mixture of his name, Demetrius, Dimitraki, Taki, and his street number, 183rd. Being a foot messenger, he was constantly on the subway and began to put up his tags along with his travels. This spawned the 1971 article in the New York Times titled Taki 183, spawns pen pals. Julio 204 is also credited as an early graffitiist, though not recognized at the time outside of the graffiti subculture. Also taking place during this era was the movement from outside of the city streets to the subway. Graffiti also saw its first seeds of competition around this time. The goal of most graffitiists at this point was having as many tags and bombs in as many places as possible. Graffitiists began to break into subway yards in order to paint as many trains as they could with lower risk, often creating larger elaborate pieces of art along the subway car sides. In 1971, tags began to take their signature signature calligraphic appearance because due to the huge number of participants, each participant needed a way to distinguish themselves. Aside from the growing complexity and creativity, tags also began to grow in size and scale. For example, many graffitiists had begun to increase letter size and line thickness, as well as outlining their tags. This gave birth to the so-called masterpiece or piece in 1972. Supercool 223rd is credited as being the first to do these pieces. The use of designs such as polka dots, cross hatches, and checkers became increasingly popular. Spray paint use increased dramatically around this time as graffitiists began to expand their work. Top to bottoms works, which span the entire height of a train car, made their first appearances around this time as well. 
The overall creativity and artistic maturation of this time period did not go unnoticed to the public. Hugo Martinez founded the United Graffitiist UGA in 1972. UGA consisted of many top graffitiists of the time and aimed to present graffiti in an art gallery setting. By 1974, graffitiists had begun to incorporate the use of scenery and cartoon characters into their work. TF5, The Fabulous Five, was a crew which was known for their elaborately designed whole cars. By the mid-70s, most standards had been set in graffiti writing and culture. The heaviest bombing in U.S. history took place in this period partially because of the economic restraints of New York City, which limited its ability to combat this art form with graffiti removal programs or transit maintenance. Top to bottoms evolved to take up entire subway cars. A notable development was the throw-up, which is more complex than simple tagging, but not as intricate as a piece. Not long after the introduction, throw-ups led to races to see who could do the largest number in the shortest time. Graffiti writing was becoming very competitive and graffiti participants strove to go all city or to have their names seen in all five boroughs. Eventually, the standards set in the early 1970s began to stagnate, and in the 1980s, graffitis began to expand and change the subculture as described in the 1984 book Subway Art. The late 70s and early 80s brought a new wave of creativity to the scene. As the influence of graffiti grew beyond the Bronx, a movement began with the encouragement of Friendly Freddy. Fab Five Freddy, Fred Brathwaite, is another popular graffiti figure of this time who started in Brooklyn, wall writing group. He notes how differences in spray technique and letters between Upper Manhattan and Brooklyn began to merge in the late 70s. Out of that came Wild Style. Fab Five Freddy is often credited with helping spread the influence of graffiti and rap music beyond its early foundations in the Bronx and making links with mostly white downtown art and music scenes. It was around this time that the established art world started becoming receptive to the graffiti culture for the first time since Hugo Martinez's Razor Gallery in the early 70s. It was also, however, the last wave of significant graffiti occurrences before the Transit Authority made graffiti eradication a priority. The Metropolitan Transportation Authority, or MTA, began to repair yard fences and remove graffiti consistently, with the MTA consistently abating graffiti. Many graffitiists have quit applying graffiti on their property. Just as the culture was spreading outside of New York City and overseas, the culture aspect of graffiti in New York City was said to be deteriorating almost to the point of extinction. The rapid decline in writing was due to several factors. The streets became more dangerous due to the burgeoning crack epidemic, legislation was underway to make penalties graffiti vandalism more severe, and restrictions on the paint sale and display made shoplifting more difficult. Above all, the MTA greatly increased their anti-graffiti budget. Many favored painting sites became heavily guarded. Yards were patrolled, newer and better fences were erected, and buffing of pieces was strong, heavy, and consistent. Stainless steel, to which paint adheres poorly and was easily removed by the powerful cleaning solutions and spinning brushes used in automatic car washers at the yards, had also became the car body material of choice for the new rolling stock, retiring hundreds of worn-out carbon steel-bodied subway cars whose exteriors had made an ideal canvas for taggers. As a result of rolling stock being harder to paint, more graffitis went into the streets, which is now, along with the computer trains and boxcars, the most prevalent form of writing. Many graffitis, however, chose to see the new problems as a challenge rather than a reason to quit. A downside to these challenges was that they became very territorial of good spots, and strength and unity in numbers became increasingly important. Some of the mentionable graffitis from this era were Blade, Dondi, Min One, Quick, Scene, and Scheme. This was stated to be the end of the casual New York City subway graffitis, and the years to follow would be populated by only what some considered the most die-hard graffitis. People often found that making graffiti around their local areas was an easier way to get caught, so they traveled to different areas. The years between 1985 and 1989 became known as the die-hard era. The last shot for the graffiti participants of this time was in the form of subway cars destined for the scrapyard. With the increased security, the culture had taken a step back. The previous elaborate burners on the outside of cars were now marred with simplistic marker tags which often 
been soaked through the paint. By mid-1986, the MTA and the CTA were winning their war on graffiti, and the population of active graffitis diminished. As their population lowered, so did the violence associated with graffiti crews and bombing. Rooftops also were being the new billboard for some 1980 graffitis. The current era in graffiti is characterized by a majority of participants moving from train carriages to street galleries. The clean train movement started in May 1989 when New York City attempted to remove all the subway cars found with graffiti on them out of the transit system as they bought in new graffiti-free rolling stock like the R62, R62A, R68, and R68A. Because of this, many graffitis were unable to continue. Much controversy arose among the street debating whether graffiti should be considered an actual art form. Videograph Productions was the first graffiti video series to document New York City's clean train movement. Prior to the clean train movement, the streets were largely left untouched not only in New York City, but in other major American cities as well. After the transit company began diligently cleaning the trains, graffiti burst onto the streets of America to an unsuspecting, unappreciative public. During this period, many graffitis had taken to displaying their work in galleries and owning their own studio. This practice started in the early 1980s with practitioners such as Jean-Michel Basquiat, who started out tagging locations with his moniker Samo, same old shit, and Keith Haring, who was also able to take his art into studio spaces. In some cases, graffiti practitioners had achieved such elaborate graffiti, especially those done in memory of deceased persons, on storefront gates that shopkeepers had hesitated to cover them up. In the Bronx, after the death of rapper Big Pun, several murals dedicated to his life, done by Big 183, Bio, Nicer, Tats Crew, appeared virtually overnight. Similar outpourings occurred after the deaths of Notorious B.I.G., Tupac Shakur, Big L, and Jam Master J. A regular scheduled event called Paint Louis is held annually in St. Louis. Paint Louis brings together graffitiists from around the world to paint for two days as a celebration of the craft to paint on the largest continuous wall to make the largest mural in the world. The application of graffiti is illegal in many cities. Graffiti making supplies may be regulated by local ordinances. Advocates of the broken window theory believe that this sense of decay encourages further vandalism and promotes an environment leading to offenses that are more serious. Former New York City Mayor Ed Koch's vigorous subscription to the broken window theory promoted the aggressive anti-graffiti campaign in New York City in the early 80s, resulting in the buff, a chemical wash for trains that dissolved the paint. New York City has adopted a strenuous zero-tolerance policy ever since this. However, throughout the world, authorities often treat graffiti as a minor nuisance crime, though with widely varying penalties. In New York City, rooftops became the mainstream graffiti location after graffiti on trains died out. In 1995, New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani set up an anti-graffiti task force, a multi-agency initiative to combat the perceived problem of graffiti vandals in New York City. This began a crackdown on quality of life crimes throughout the city and one of the largest anti-graffiti campaigns in U.S. history. On January 1st, 2006, in New York City, legislation created by the council member Pete Vallon Jr. attempted to make it illegal for a person under the age of 21 to possess a spray paint or permanent markers. The law prompted outrage by fashion and media mogul Mark Echo, who sued Mayor Michael Bloomberg and the council member Vallone on behalf of art students and graffiti artists. On May 1st, 2006, Judge George B. Daniels granted the plaintiff's request for a preliminary injunction against the recent amendments to the anti-graffiti legislation, effectively prohibiting the New York Police Department from enforcing the restrictions. A similar measure was proposed in Newcastle County, Delaware in April 2006 and passed into law as a county ordinance in May 2006. Chicago's mayor, Richard M. Daly, created the Graffiti Blasters to eliminate graffiti and gang-related vandalism. The Bureau advertises free cleanup within 24 hours of a phone call. The Bureau uses paint compatible with the city's color scheme and baking soda-based solvents to remove some variants of graffiti. In 1992, an ordinance was passed in Chicago that bans the sale and possession of spray paint and certain types of etching equipment and markers. The law falls under Chapter 8, Section 4, Public Peace and Welfare, Section 100, Vagrancy. The specific law, 
130. Makes graffiti an offense with a fine of no less than $500 per incident, surpassing the penalty for public drunkenness, peddling, or disrupting a religious service. In 2005, the city of Pittsburgh implemented a customized, database-driven graffiti tracking system to build evidence for prosecution of graffiti suspects by linking tags to instances of graffiti. One of the first suspects to be identified by the system as being responsible for significant graffiti was Daniel Montana, known as Defone. He was dubbed the king of graffiti for having tagged close to 200 buildings in the city and was later sentenced to two and a half to five years in prison. Rapid City, South Dakota contains a section of the city known as Our Alley, a back alley in the downtown district between Main Street and St. Joseph Street and stretching from 6th to 7th Street. It first began to properly form around 2005 and has expanded since. While graffiti is largely illegal in Rapid City, there are no ordinances condoning it. Our Alley is purposely overlooked by law enforcement and cleanup crews and relies on the community of artists and landowners to add to and maintain the space. The alley has become quite popular for tourists and has become a cultural center for the city. The Chicago Transit Authority has been utilizing the city court system to sue graffiti vandals or parents of juvenile vandals that have been caught to recover the cleanup costs. The CTA reported they experienced about a million dollars in graffiti-related expenses annually. Typically, the term street art, or more specifically post-graffiti, is used to distinguish contemporary public space artwork from territorial graffiti, vandalism, and corporate art. Some people consider street art a crime. Others consider it a form of art. It is a borderline issue. Now, in most large cities, they get artists to paint murals and paint sides of buildings to add the character and culture they washed away in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Graffiti has been used since the beginning of time. Writing on the wall almost seems to be instinctual at a young age, but like most joy that comes naturally as you get older, they shame you for it. Most art has a restrictor plate on it, until you get to those people who stand up and fight who we have mentioned before, like the Uncle Lukes and more. Thank these artists, because that's what they are, even if the government calls them criminals. The difference between some of these artists and artists in museums is opportunity, and that's it. Thank you. Thank you for making the cities have more character, be more loved, and be more cultured. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Hip Hop History. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review if possible. Thank you, and have a great day.